Welcome to MCC from the Capitol, a podcast by the Missouri Catholic Conference. In this episode, the history and hurdles of Catholic education in Missouri. Missouri was a trailblazer because we were kind of left out. We had one of the worst constitutions, most bigoted constitutions. We invite you to listen along as our host and executive director, Jamie Morris, chats with experts about public policy issues from a Catholic perspective. We hope you enjoyed this episode from MCC from the Capitol. Welcome to the Missouri Catholic Conference from the Capitol podcast, where we take a deeper look at the social and political issues facing Missouri and the Catholic Church and how those issues will impact public policy. I'm Jamie Morris, Executive Director of the MCC. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that parents have the first responsibility for the education of their children. In light of this responsibility, quote, parents have the right to choose a school for them which corresponds to their own convictions. This right is fundamental. As far as possible, parents have the duty of choosing schools that will help them best in their task as Christian educators. Public authorities have a duty of guaranteeing this parental right and of ensuring the concrete conditions for its exercise, unquote. The Missouri Catholic Conference has consistently advocated for expanded educational options for Catholic families, but such work was frequently limited by the state's so-called Blaine Amendment, a constitutional amendment limiting aid to religious schools. However, this summer, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling in Carson versus Macon that many think will represent the end of Missouri's Blaine Amendment. Joining us today to discuss the Carson case and what it means for the state is Mike Hoy. Mike is a 40-year veteran of the MCC, where he worked as legislative specialist and lobbyist, and then as executive director of the conference before his retirement in 2018. Mike has also extensively studied anti-Catholic bias in the Missouri Constitution, and we're glad to have him here today. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Welcome back. My pleasure. As I said in the open, you've studied pretty extensively the history of education law in the state. You've worked as a member of the conference, and you've written about it as well with a focus on the Blaine Amendment. Can you just tell our listeners up front, what are these Blaine Amendments and how did they come about? Well, actually, Missouri preceded the, uh, the National Blaine Amendment, which was adopted by uh, Congress in uh, 1875. But in 1870, Missouri adopted really one of the first Blaine Amendments in our state constitution and one of the first Blaine Amendments throughout the country. And basically, it said that you couldn't provide any assistance or aid to private parochial schools, religious schools. And it was quite a campaign. Back in those days, this was right after the Civil War, there were a number of legislators that wanted to, what they called, divide the money and allow as many students as were in the private sector to those schools to receive the money on that basis, to just divide it between the public and the private. That was proposed in the legislature by some... Uh, folks out of St. Louis, and there was some big backlash. And as a result of that, a constitutional amendment drive went underway. So in 1870, uh, voters passed the amendment, and uh, it was passed along with a bunch of other amendments that dealt with post-Civil War issues. And so that's hamstrung for many years 
the uh, delivery of services to uh, private school children, Catholic school children. And I know, you know, it applies to, to all parochial mm-hmm. schools, but it really has a basis in sort of an anti-Catholic bias, does it not? Oh, uh, yeah. Of during, the time. Yeah. And you could even go back and look at the newspapers at the time of the 1870 campaign. There was a lot of talk about, well, we can't fund the papist schools. A lot of organizations came out opposing it. The State Board of Education came out and said things about the Catholic schools. We don't want to be giving money to them. But yeah, throughout the 19th century, anti-Catholicism was a huge prejudice. Uh, A lot of Catholics came over from Southern Europe, Italians and so forth. And uh, they were kind of the the other, you know, they were the immigrants back then. And people were suspicious of them and they felt like Catholics were superstitious. They had priests that wore strange, you know, black uniforms, Cossacks, they didn't understand what to call them, but they, they were suspicious of them. Yes. And uh, there was even writings by evangelical uh, preachers in the 19th century warning that Catholics wanted to uh, settle the Midwest because it was part of a papal plot to take over America by the Vatican. The Grand Vatican Plot. The, va- yes. the Grand Vatican Plot. Yes. So when it got down to something specific, like, well, why don't we be fair about how we fund our schools or let's help out private and parochial kids, uh, you know, that all that baggage would then come forward and people would get excited and oppose it. But a lot of times they were also couched in sort of a, these amendments are upholding the First Amendment protections, but that's kind of flipped, is it not? What would you say to that? Well, there's the, yeah, I mean, they want to talk about a separation of church and state. But there's also the free exercise of religion. So it's really both things at the same time. You have to recall that when the First Amendment went into play and was established uh, in the U.S. Constitution, in the colonial governments, like in Virginia, the Anglican was the, was the recognized church, and they actually funded Anglican ministers and schools directly uh, from the House of Burgess in Virginia, and the Baptists objected to that because they didn't get any funds. There were some really bitter uh, rivalries and factionalism. And so that was one of the reasons the First Amendment came forward is to say, look, we're just going to allow people to practice their religion. But also is the idea we want to keep church and state somewhat separate because they'd also seen all the issues of fights and civil wars yeah. and the Hundred Years War and so forth, uh, dealing with Protestants versus Catholics mm-hmm. in Europe. And they wanted to avoid that. so. That was kind of the impetus behind it, behind the First Amendment. Sure. So now, fast forward about a century, roughly, and Missouri's Blaine Amendment really was sort of the catalyst for the creation of the Missouri Catholic Conference. We had in 1965, Congress passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, and that required local public school districts to provide aid to eligible private school students. And yes. when our Catholic schools attempted to receive services under the law, they uh, ran into a few roadblocks. Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, DESI, as we would call it for short, basically said, uh, no, you know, we're not going to give you any services, even though the federal law said there had to be equitable services. They, the state would argue back that, well, that's nice that the federal law says that, but if we do that, we'd be violating the Missouri Constitution. So we can't do that. And so there were legal battles, there were political battles. The Catholic Conference was instrumental in passing federal legislation that for the first time allowed what was called a bypass in uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act so that if the state claimed they couldn't provide the services because of their constitution, 
then the federal government could bypass the state bureaucracy, okay. hire a private contractor who would provide the services to, you know, the private school children. And uh, so that was very important to Missouri. And I believe there was one other state. It may have been Virginia. There were several states that utilized the bypass. And the Missouri Catholic Conference was really the main spearhead of getting that federal legislation passed, that there was a bypass. And then once it passed, that was only the beginning because the bypass had to be invoked school district by school district. You had to prove on each school district level whether there were inequitable services. And so the conference geared up. They had staff that went around and trained people in each diocese in St. Louis, Kansas City, Springfield, Jeff City, all over the corners of the state and really worked on training people and helping to advocate and working in those district by district battles because it was a district by district battle to get those bypasses in place. So that was a big project. And even when I came to the conference in 1979, uh, we were still working on once in a while putting in place a bypass in a district that decided they weren't happy with the public school services if there was any services at all. Still fighting this battle almost 15 years then after the initial issue arose. And so, oh, yeah, they would say things like, well, we'll provide some services, uh, but we can't provide it in the public school. You know, we, we, we can't have our public school teachers go into Catholic schools because it would be a sectarian atmosphere and that sure. would be inappropriate. And they, they just kept throwing up all kinds of obstacles. And that's why we had to put the bypass in place. This is in actually elementary secondary education act was multifaceted. So we're talking about a, what was called Title I, which was services mainly to uh, children with educational deficits, often low-income children. So you also had to document that your children had educational deficits in order to qualify for the Title I okay. program. And that dealt with reading, writing, and arithmetic services. That really kind of set the stage, I guess, and for the MCC's advocacy in this area. You mentioned you joined in 1979. Um, what were some of the other education issues? I know that obviously the conference was still always limited by the Blaine Amendment sort of hovering over everything, but what were some of the other, you know, victories or fights? Or, well, there, you was, know? there was another title called Title II, uh, and that provided like computers, globes, all kinds of learning material to schools, but they said, well, we can't give it to the religious schools, but it can be lent to you. And so Part of the issue was about every three or four years, a contractor had to be reapproved to provide the Title II services. And so I remember working a lot to make sure that services wouldn't be discontinued while the contractors were bidding and arguing with the federal government about the new contract for another period of time. And that could get a little nerve wracking at times and the schools a bit get nervous about the program maybe being discontinued. That was always one. And then the other thing we worked on in the legislature continuously was um, trying to get some kind of tax relief for private school parents. So we worked on that issue a lot. There's a lot of horror stories I could tell you about <laughs> staying up all night long in the, uh, in the Missouri Senate, trying to pass a, like a tuition tax credit for private religious schools. Uh, it was a long running battle. Yes. And a battle that still in a lot of ways continues on. And what would you say you know, during your time at the conference, what do you consider to be the biggest victory we had in the education realm? Well, certainly continuing to make sure that the Title I services 
were delivered uh, because there were always little uh, administrative problems that would come up. That was really important. It was very behind the scenes. It wasn't glamorous because the program had already been put in place, but it really was important because there were a lot of kids that needed those services. Other victories, we were able to pass a bill that made sure that special educational services were provided to Catholic school and private school children, religious school children on an equitable basis. We said there couldn't be discrimination between public and private school children. That was a big victory. I remember we went, uh, there was a Sunday when we, we got people from all over to come to the galleries of the Senate the night before. And well, it was a long process, but we had calls coming in to senators for weeks on end. And Senator Leibier, who was from um, down in the Ozark area, getting up and saying, well, I, I don't know if I really like this bill, but I've got so many phone calls. I guess maybe I'm going to have to vote for it. And so we had people up there with placards and everything. And, and so that bill passing was a big deal. The other big victory was uh, the scholarship program for children that they can uh, get some scholarship help to go to like junior colleges and things like that for more technical type education. And we had a hard time passing that. They just wanted to keep that program only for public schools. So only public school graduates could get the college scholarship. Oh, okay. And so we had to work hard, but we finally were able to get that program. So it also included the Catholic and the private school, high school graduates as well. So they could get that, that scholarship as well. So that was a big deal. That took a number of years to pass. I remember when we first proposed it, the, the lobbyists came from all over the public school lobby saying, please don't offer this amendment. We don't want to jeopardize the scholarship program. Yeah. So we had to fight that one a long time. Yeah, it was a big victory. And uh, one of the problems we had with the A-plus program was a misconception that all the Catholic high schools were elite prep schools. People, they were going to college, maybe even Ivy League schools or Notre Dame or something. And so we had to point out that, no, we still had in the Catholic high schools some kids that would like to go to uh, you know, a two-year program. A big advocate was from uh, the the school in Washington, Missouri, St. Francis. They were they were a big advocate. Halias had a number of students that went over to JC to get technical education during the school day, and they they would have they wanted to get the A plus scholarships for for the two-year programs after high school. So we had to continually point that out that hey, we have these we have these kids too, and they they deserve to be treated fairly. Now, getting back to Blaine amendments. In the last five years, we've seen the U.S. Supreme Court chip away at these amendments. We first had the Trinity Lutheran case, where the court held that a state couldn't exclude churches from neutral and secular aid programs. In that instance, it was a playground resurfacing grant. We then had the Espinoza case, which held that a state could not prohibit a program that provided tax credit for donations to a scholarship program merely because those scholarships could be used in religious schools. And this summer, we had the Carson case that was referenced in the opening. Now, I understand that you've taken a look at that case. And could you tell us what it was about and what the court ultimately held? The bottom line on that decision is the conclusion the court reaches is that if you're going to provide a program beyond the public school sphere, to private schools, you can't exclude religious schools because that would be discriminatory against religion. You can't do that. Now, if a public school wants to have a program that's strictly for public Mm -hmm. schools, that's fine. 
But if you're going to go out and you're going to have grants and other kinds of programs that are trying to include the private sector, you can't single out religious schools and say, well, you can't participate because that's discriminatory. That's really the bottom line of the decision. And it has lots and lots of implications. There's all kinds of programs out there that uh, you can take advantage of if, if we're not going to discriminate against on the basis of religion. Do you have any ideas what you think will or should be proposed or, you know, result from this ruling? Well, I mean, we do have some school choice programs that are beginning to develop in Missouri. So I would expect that now the, uh, the religious Lutheran Catholic and other religious schools will be able to participate in, in the scholarship programs that these, I mean, if they're going to have, if you're going to have a scholarship program, a school choice that goes beyond mm. the public schools, and it's going to include private schools. You can't just say, well, we're just going to do it for the charter schools. Yeah. You've got to do it for the Catholic schools and Lutheran schools. Otherwise you're discriminating. So that's, that's a big victory. And uh, that'll be something that you'll have to work on because <laughs> <laughs> it always gets down to the actual implementation to make sure it, a it actually happens. Sometimes you have to fight it even after the court makes the decision. talk about this, and that is the important point that the court seemed to reach was no one is saying that the state has to fund private education, have to fund religious education. There's no requirement in that arena. But if you do, yes, you cannot exclude one school just because they teach you know, religion or they have a religious character. And I think that will open the door going forward. Well, uh, for instance, under President Carter years ago, there was an energy conservation program that was trying to get schools to upgrade, make their uh, their windows and their doors more weather, you know, resistant. And, and so you wouldn't waste so much energy. I believe that program may not be around anymore, but it was around for a number of years. We had some participation, but not quite as full as it could be now under, under this decision, like any kind of federal program where they say, well, look, it's in the public interest that we have energy efficient schools and we want to include all schools, Missouri's not going to be able to say, well, we can't do that because our constitution doesn't allow us because that it violates our state constitution. Because what the federal government can say is you're violating the federal law and how it's been interpreted by the U S Supreme court. And that trumps your, your state constitutional yeah. argument. So I think we're going to see in programs like that, where there's a kind of a national interest that needs to be expanded, be it conservation or, you know, whatever it might be, Catholic schools should be able to participate. And, you know, and I don't want people to get the impression from our discussion, we sometimes view on either side of this issue, this education funding and such as a zero sum game, public versus private yeah. schools. And you know better than anyone having been in this office for four decades, it really is a partnership. Well, it is. And as a person that, you know, has people working in the public schools and is, you know, Jeff City is not a huge place like St. Louis and the conference. I mean, as a conference director and even before then, I spent a lot of time going around to small rural communities. And what you find out is in a lot of these communities, the public school is kind of the heart and soul of the community. There may not be a Catholic school at all, or there might be a Catholic elementary school, but everybody goes to the public high school. And that public high school is a community hall. It's used for all kinds of activities beyond schooling. And you see a lot of cooperation informally going on between Catholic and Lutheran schools and public schools, particularly in rural areas. 
And I think sometimes when, when you look at it through the lens, perhaps of metropolitan St. Louis, it gets kind of distorted what the reality is around the state of Missouri, because there actually is a lot of cooperation between uh, public schools and Catholic schools. They have to cooperate in these small towns. They have limited resources. And so they have to find ways to work together and they want to work together. They know oh, each yeah. other. Uh, and so, you know, I think we'll see more and more of that. Now you won't have the legal barriers to people being able to work together even more. And I'm a product of that scenario of small rural town, went, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade, go to the Catholic school. I happened to go to the public high school that also then took kids from our Catholic school, from the local Lutheran school. You know, everyone is in cooperation with another and it is a community effort. And yeah, I mean, I think there's some people in this in the school choice movement that uh, may want to privatize education completely and just totally eliminate public schools and just have private schools. That's not the position or hasn't been the position of of the Catholic Church in the United States. We've always supported uh, public education. We just wanted to make sure that we were treated fairly in these in, in services and programs as well. And we were always willing to cooperate. Well, and, and I think the other thing that I have on occasion seen are, uh, you know, individuals after, after say, these cases that have almost taken sort of an attitude of, okay, great, this is the opportunity sort of for the Catholic schools to get their money, quote unquote, you know, meaning we need to get our share of tax dollars. But there's a danger to that as well, though, because if you're being funded, if you're taking federal money, there may be federal strings attached to that as well, too. And so I like to remind people, you don't want to get in a position where you are still a public school that just happens to teach religion because there are other implications, are there not, if you're taking federal funds? Right. I mean, I think there it's a balance. It's mm-hmm. a balance. And it's a fear we always heard from uh, folks as we were trying to promote various kinds of programs as well. We don't want to just become our Catholic schools to become public schools. And uh, the response to that is you've got to look at it program by program and make an evaluation. No private school will be should be forced to participate in these programs or Catholic school. Uh, and it's a decision that Catholic schools and dioceses in assistance with Catholic conference and legal people have to decide how many requirements do we find acceptable and reasonable. And if they get to the point where they're unreasonable or even morally objectionable, then we have to make a decision that, you know what, we're just not going to participate. That means we don't get the funds, but there's a bigger value involved. And so we're not going to be involved in, in that program. But I think you just take it program by program and see what those uh, what those regulations are. And I guess the final argument from people that are real concerned about this is, well, we, we don't know what might happen in the future. And my response to that is take it year by year, day by day. Uh, if the regulations and the requirements are reasonable and you can get some benefit from the program, why not participate? If down the road you don't like the direction it's going in, you can always you can always withdraw and not participate. Yeah. You can't be forced. No federal law, no state law forces religious schools to participate in these public programs. They don't have to if they don't want to. Yeah. It's totally voluntary. I would just say there's just tremendous effort through the years by the Catholic community to make sure Catholic school kids got fair treatment. And there were a lot of people like Lou DeFeo, uh, who was a former executive director, who was really legendary. Yes. And uh, if you looked at the files, you saw his name come up a lot. He really, I mean, he, he was at the White House talking during the Nixon administration to Nixon's staff on this bypass legislation. You know, we, we Missouri was a trailblazer because we were kind of left out. We had one of the worst 
constitutions, most bigoted constitutions. And so even when the Elementary and Secondary Education Act passed in 65, you know, and, and some states like, oh, well, we're, everything's great. Well, it wasn't great in Missouri. <laughs> and we had to keep banging the table and saying, no, it's not great here. And, and keep pushing. And we did. And we finally, you know, got some services. But it took a lot of hard work and a lot of persistence from a lot of people around the state to get that done. As someone very new to this position, I, I do want to give my thanks and appreciation for the work that was done in the decades leading to my tenure here. Because, like I said, I, I know this has been a long battle and hopefully post-Carson you know, the Blaine Amendment is a thing of the past. So again, thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us today. Uh, Really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you to all those who've been listening. And we hope you join us for the next MCC from the Capitol podcast. God bless. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode from MCC from the Capitol. To hear more from the Missouri Catholic Conference, visit our website at mocatholic.org. That's mocatholic.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app.